Welcome to Summit Podcasts. This is Michael Bond. Today I'm speaking with pastors Colin McKnight and Todd Stanley. Colin is the campus pastor for Summit Blairsville, and Todd is the associate pastor at our Indiana location. In this episode, we are discussing part two of the sermon series titled The Gospel According To. This series is designed to compare the true gospel with other archetypal ideas set down in the culture. This particular message is in reference to the worldview promoted by Harry Styles. For those who don't know, Harry Styles is a mega-popular singer and songwriter. As Pastor Kendall articulated in the full sermon, this content is not intended to attack Harry Styles as a person, but rather to wrestle with the ideas he promotes, which, by the way, are not his own ideas. We want these sermon discussions to function much like the drive home from church. Imagine you just heard the message and you're talking it over with your friends and family. That unpacking process is what we hope to achieve here. In this conversation, we talk about separating the message from the messenger so that we might love people who disagree with us. Among other things, we discuss the importance of reading scripture and why so many Christians tend not to do it. We also talk about sanctification and how faith in Jesus changes you into a fundamentally different creation, even if you don't notice the changes immediately. Anyway, I found this discussion profitable and an excellent accompaniment to the sermon itself. If you missed part two of The Gospel According To, then I encourage you to watch it on demand at summitpa.church. As always, the audio from this sermon is available right here on summitpodcasts.church. Anyway, I'm so thankful to have you here today. So without further delay, I bring you Colin McKnight and Todd Stanley. Okay, so we are in week two of the Gospel According to. This is a series that is aimed at comparing and contrasting the biblical gospel with messages that would be sort of widespread or popular or deeply held in the culture. You often see these things in movies, literature, things like that. And um, this week we did the Gospel According to Harry Styles. And so the first clip that I want us to discuss involves separating ideas from people and realizing that often the message is older than the messenger. Let's hear it. I am not pointing the finger at Harry Styles and saying, you are a terrible person and you, sir, are leading everyone astray. No, I'm not tearing anybody down specifically. What I'm doing is I'm tearing down the message that he preaches. Because here's the deal. The message that he preaches is ancient. It is a sweet-sounding, ear-tickling, deceit-filled, ancient melody preached since before baby Jesus was even on earth and has been intertwined throughout history and pop culture since we started idolizing artists and even philosophers. Okay, so I think that one of the reasons why it's so hard to have conversations in this particular landscape in the modern era, let's say, is because people really struggle with this idea of separating the message from the messenger. And maybe it's because so many people identify with their own message. So right out of the gate, the person who you're having a conversation with is identifying with that which they are preaching. And so it's just natural to kind of paste that message over top of that person. So instead of seeing that the message that Harry Styles is preaching is is ancient and has, you know, predates him by millennia, uh, people might look at it as his original thought and might start to associate with him, associate it with him. And if that happens, and then when you disagree with the message at that point, then you're disagreeing with Harry Styles himself. Does any of that sort of ring a bell with you guys? Or what do you think about that? I definitely think that we can 
we can be short-sighted in that way. We can tend to think that every every idea that is new to us is a new idea. Um, and then also we have this this real tendency in not just in our culture, I think it's just a human tendency to um, to either deify or vilify people whose opinions either align or don't align with ours rather than seeing, ideologies for what they are and separating the people from them we attach those things to people um which which really goes back to the way that we're wired in terms of worship uh and so if there is a particular ideology that appeals to me a la the gospel according to harry styles right then i could tend to elevate deify worship that person um, because the ideology that they preach resonates with me. Mm -hmm. So are you saying that human beings are pretty simple and so as long as we have a target to hit, we can aim at it? I don't know if I would say that's simple, but when you boil it down, kind of. Seems pretty simple. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's what I was thinking is, you know, we, we are often so driven by what we see. And so if there's someone or somebody that we can focus our attention to, um, you see this in churches too that have crosses uh, up front in their sanctuary, things like that. It's something to reflect upon, something to focus on. It helps your, uh, in terms of worship and our human tendency to, to put our emotions towards some, again, we'll get into idolatry in a minute. But anyway, yeah. I think it can be difficult to, love a person if you don't love their ideas and you think that they are their ideas. And I think that we, we have to find some way to separate these things. So in practice, okay, here's, here's one way that I think about doing this. Say somebody um, is struggles with a particular sin. Um, say they struggle with stealing things. Instead of calling this person a thief, I would try to say that this person struggles with stealing or this person practices thievery. So, so at, at the most fundamental level, this is a person and the person just practices this particular sin. I think that yeah. if we get it in that order, then maybe we come to a place where we can recognize the person behind the idea, whatever it is. And I don't, actually don't think there's any way, for instance, um, if somebody were to approach Harry Styles and try to change his mind, I think that if they didn't do that first, like kind of understand that he is not his ideas, I think they would have very much luck in changing his mind because, well, first of all, they probably wouldn't be expressing an interest to understand him, to try to understand him as a person. Yeah. They're just going to go straight at the idea. But I just don't know, in addition to the idea of saying, okay, this, this is a person who practices this particular thing. Is there anything else that comes into your mind in terms of how to pull these things apart on a day to day? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what you're saying is true. I think even we do that to ourselves, right? When you start talking about the way, the way in which we see our own identities, uh, you know, you gave the example of if someone practices, th- you know, theft, uh, or someone steals, you know, do I say it, that person is a thief, right? We do that to ourselves. Like if if I've stolen, there's a difference between me saying I stole. And I am a thief. Mm-hmm. You know, one is a statement of fact. It's about, you know, guilt or innocence. Like, I stole. I, that's a fact, right? The other is about identity. It's a deeper issue. It's a, you know, and 
So we do that to ourselves and we do that to other people as well. We we attach identity, value, worth uh, to those things that they do rather than having the biblical understanding, which is that every person has value because they are created in the image of God, right? And if I understand the that that is what creates value, it's the imago Dei. And mm-hmm. so regardless of what's happened in that person's life or what's going on that has marred and uh, distorted that image, that nevertheless, the image of God, the Imago Dei resides there and there's value and worth and I need to approach them in that way in the same way that God would. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and also I was just thinking too that like how arrogant is it of me to vilify someone based on their ideologies when there have been plenty of times in my life when my understanding was wrong, when my thinking was wrong, when, you know, but my my position on something has changed over the course of time, you know, because I, I either encountered someone who lived out a different ethic in a way that made me question what I was doing, or as I encountered the Word of God, the Holy Spirit would come alongside and, and bring conviction. And, you know, so I think that we we often... Uh, you know, hold other people to a standard that that we don't even hold ourselves to, mm-hmm. uh, and so you know, and to just to go back to Harry Styles, since he's you know the, the particular ideology that we've talked about, you know, it would be ter- what why and why on earth would I say because he espouses this particular ideology today. He is and was and always yeah. will be that thing. That that's the defining thing about yeah. him. That's uh, I think that's a little. Uh, well, there's a lack of grace there. I, I guess maybe would be the way I'd say it. Yeah, I think the key. You really hit the nail on the head with that because the key here is recognizing the potential or the capacity in a person to do or say or believe the right things. So, for instance, if someone commits adultery and then you. Uh, you know, you classify that person as an adulterer and you're firm in that stance. It, implicitly, what you're saying is that that person's fundamentally incapable of having a, having a proper marriage. If if that's who they are, if they are designed as an adulterer and that's that's built into their being, then you're you're claiming that they're not able to have a proper marriage. And I think that if you do that, then you're also uh, robbing them of a pathway to redemption at that point. Or, you know, you're, you're yeah. basically working against the possibility of that potential coming to fruition. Well, you're placing your, yourself in the seat of a judge. And so, like, again, I, I totally agree with you, uh, Todd. You have to do the work of separating the two by adding value or seeing the value of this human being. Um, I think also just having an awareness, like, okay, so these themes, like for instance, in, in his work, uh, his body of work, the, these themes we see over and over again, be aware. I think a lot of people remove themselves from pop culture because uh, a, a couple of words in a song were offensive or what somebody wore was just offensive and then they just shut it down. And uh, you begin to see patterns and then you realize, wait, this is not just unique to this one person. Um, I've heard it said a lot here recently in the last couple of years, right? I would choose to rather see somebody as a person with bad ideas or maybe bad information rather than a bad person with ideas or information. And so, but it, you have to show grace Mm -hmm. and you have to give them the benefit of the doubt. Like, okay, well this, there are other circumstances beyond just right now, what I'm experiencing or this album being released 
that have influenced this person in the way that they think. Um, and sometimes that's money. Sometimes that's trauma. Sometimes it's just bad information. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So we've established the importance of separating Harry Styles as a person from the message that he preaches and how that will help us to recognize the value of the Imago Dei, even on someone like Harry Styles, for instance. Um, now let's take a look at a little bit of what his message is. The truth that Harry Styles tells in this and that pop culture tells in be love and spread love and give love is simply a half truth. It honestly doesn't even go along with the rest of his narrative. It doesn't go along with the rest of the self-love movement because at its root, self-love is the pursuit of one's own well-being and happiness, not somebody else's. How are you going to love unselfishly if you're looking out for you all the time? That's impossible to do. I can't love unselfishly, which is what love really is, if I'm always looking out for myself. This clip really presents what I think is the Achilles heel to the, the worldview of humanism. So the, the idea that there's this, this moral landscape that, uh, you know, we can think of the worst possible misery for everyone and chase the opposite of that and therefore achieve a well-balanced, well-adjusted society without God, essentially. Um, and I think that the, the major weakness in that is why should I care? Like really, like what's my motivation to work for the well-being of other people? Um, because there are some times when my happiness or my pleasure comes in direct contradiction to the happiness or pleasure of somebody else. And so if I'm, if I'm a humanist and not only that, a humanist who promotes self-love, then I don't see a way out whenever I encounter someone who's interest is in direct conflict with my own. And so that's, I think, one of the major weaknesses of the message that Styles preaches. But I don't know what you guys have to say about like that, maybe humanism in general or uh, about that particular weakness. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we recognize uh, that our tendency is toward selfishness. And no matter what our particular ideology might be, with rare exception, right? There are a few exceptions, but with rare exception, every belief system, every ideology would say that selfishness is a, a negative character trait, right? That it doesn't accomplish good in the world, that it is healthy and good for us to put others before ourselves. Um, and so it's an interesting thing that this has become... Uh, a lot more prevalent than it ever was before. Uh, at the same time that um, belief seems to be on the decline, mm -hmm. right? So the less that society seems to believe as a whole, the less faith has become... Um, a prevailing part of our culture, the greater our tendency towards selfishness, which, I mean, look, go back to the garden, go back to the very beginning of this thing, and that is the, that is the temptation from the beginning, to put my desires, my wants above those of someone else. In the garden, it was above, uh, you know, God's desire for Adam and Eve, um, or, you know, if you want to look at it interpersonally, it was Eve's desire to 
to consume the fruit, regardless of what the effect might be on Adam, knowing what God had said. Adam as well, like the Bible says that he was with her. So Adam's watching this whole thing go down and just doesn't say anything about it, knowing what God has said, you know. And so uh, selfishness is at the center of all of that. And here we are thousands of years later, right? Uh, still wrestling with that same thing. It's nothing new. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just, it's where our, our sinful nature leads us. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I really answered your question other than just to say, like, this is common to all of us mm-hmm. uh, and seems to be on the increase. Well, maybe some of the things in this if we try to nail down the reasons why in this particular theater of, of our generation, why selfishness is on the rise and why it's, it's, it's dominating the culture. A couple things, one prosperity. So like, for instance, some people have said of the Iraq war, that it was the first war that essentially you didn't have to sacrifice for if you didn't want to, like you, if you, know, if you weren't, if you didn't know someone who was fighting in the war, if you weren't paying attention, you, you could be an American and sufficiently close your eyes to where you wouldn't even know what was going on. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, is a consequence of prosperity. Um, it's also military might, but that might go hand in hand with prosperity. And so I think that we live in an age where it's just not as necessary to build a homestead. It's not as necessary to have t- a, a tightly knit community around you because, you know, serving the people around you you don't need to do that in order for the reciprocity as much in, in this particular generation. And so maybe that's leading to the selfishness. And then also, Todd, like you were saying, people who tend to have, um, let's say, religious ideology pretty universally would decry selfishness. So maybe maybe there's like a, a, a thing about when we stop looking up, we start looking in. I don't know. Like if there's, we have to find some way to guide ourselves through our day to day and through what we believe about the world. And if we're not looking to a grand narrative or a higher power, let's say, uh, what is left for us besides ourselves? Yeah. I mean, Colin, you can maybe speak to this too, but I, I think this ideology, I think this this seeps its way into the church as well, right? Um, I mean, for a large part of the last, I don't know, most of my life, right? The rise of of prosperity gospel even, right? Puts me at the center, right? That that Jesus, you know, Jesus died to make me happy and healthy and wealthy. Uh, and, and, and it's very individualized. And the problem is, now salvation is for every individual. And my relationship, your relationship with Christ should be very individual, very personal, very, you know, I, I have a relationship with Jesus. You have a relationship with Jesus. He identifies with each one of us as individuals, loves us uniquely as people, right? But at the same time, the, the ethic of the gospel is others first, the vision of Scripture is is not that each of us as individuals is out there separated from one another, but that we are connected and dependent on one another. But we've tended to preach a gospel uh, in the West, at least, that uh, that makes each of us an island, 
outside of, hey, you've got a place to serve at church. We'd really love for you to be mm-hmm. greet at the door. We'd really love for you to serve in kids. We'd really love for you to help out. And it becomes about supporting the programs of the church rather than being really in community, yeah. engaging in the 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 you know the mission of God in the earth. Mm. Uh, and I don't know how we remedy all that, but I mean, I think there has to be some correction in that way because we as the body of Christ and as the people of God have to be markedly different. And our ethics have to be markedly different than the ethics of the world. And I would say for a large, to a large degree, they have not been. Hmm. Well, humanism itself is based on this thought that humans have what they need to solve problems through rationality, basically. I mean, that's a terrible, uh, well, anyway, that's the paraphrase version of what Webster's Dictionary says, right? No, anyway. Um, but I think... There's a big hole there because humans are not the answer to human problems, right? We, we live in an interesting mixture of culture today that identifies climate change and says the problem is humans. The solution is humans. Uh, we live in a culture where people are celebrated for having um, more than enough and being very luxurious. Um, and then we say, wait, this is wrong. So they have to solve it. Otherwise, we cancel those people. Um, and uh, we've... Again, we've removed ourselves from divine. What makes the people of God different is that they are people of not people. They're not uh, of the kingdom of this world. They are not just the human race. They are divinely given power through the Holy Spirit and wisdom from God to live a different life. And so uh, humanism itself is not the answer, even though we live in a culture today where it just says, yeah, this, we can figure this out together. We all have a responsibility to do that. And again, we speaking to the individualistic ideology where, you know, hey, I have enough. I can take care of mine uh, and I don't owe anything to you. Again, that's selfishness that can be solved in a divine way mm-hmm. from a true life change yeah. in Christ. Yeah. Colin, uh, one of, on that point about uh, humanism suggesting that human beings have everything that they need to solve their problems. I think one of the big mistakes that the humanists make is the failure to recognize the broken nature of humanity or the fallen nature of humanity. So for instance, if we just say, okay, we need more power, we need more powerful tools. If we have more powerful tools, we can solve our problems. Well, the problem with a more powerful tool is that you can leverage it in either direction. You can leverage it for well-being or you could leverage leverage it for destruction. And I think that to assume as I think many humanists do, to assume that we are just technological innovation away from arriving at the utopia, it just doesn't take into account the fact that tools are not ethical in and of themselves. They're just, they just add power in one direction or another. And I think that that's one of the, in addition to people not potentially not caring about the well-being of others, um, possibly empowering bad actors as a consequence of thinking all you need is the tools, I think is also another danger there. Evil will always come out. Intentions, true intentions of human beings will always come out, whether they're uh, identified that way as, like we said earlier, either someone that steals or a thief. Um, But people's true intentions will eventually come out if they're not reconciled with the cross and with the cause of Christ, which transforms. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before we hit this next point, Todd, you said something that I thought was pretty interesting. You, You talked about how in the modern church, in the Western church, let's say, even, um, people are sort of being 
uh, they're, they're, they're becoming islands unto themselves. And that it's more about lifting up and serving the program than it is about being knitted into community. And I started thinking about that because I think, you know, we often think about serving to support a program as a sacrifice, but I don't know that it's more sacrificial than, than being in community. I think being in community might be more sacrificial. You know, when you really think about like what it takes to foster a deep relationship with even just one other person, let alone several other people, as opposed to like, well, you know, I can serve at my church once a month and then the rest of the time I don't need to think about it. And so maybe one of the motivations for people uh, isolating themselves is that they don't have to sacrifice as much. But I think the weakness with that is that you're putting all of your dependence on an infrastructure at that point. And if for some reason you lose that infrastructure, mm-hmm. then you're alone. You're, you're an island. And, you know, like we, we, we talked earlier about the how people from years past had to homestead, you know, in order to sustain themselves. And, and they don't need to do that now. But the reason they don't need to do that now is because of the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And we've lost those skills. And like, I'm not saying we need to go back to you know, being pilgrims, but it's just, it, it is the case that if, if no one has those abilities anymore, or if those abilities are rare and then we lose the infrastructure, it's like, we're in a real problem at that point. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we're going to go to this next piece, which is about knowing God by reading his word. How will you know who God is and what his character is? If you don't read his words, it is impossible. I do not know my great grandfather. I don't know anything hardly about him because there's really nothing written about him. However, if there was something that was written that I could read, like a journal or whatever, I would like to read it to get to know who my great-grandfather was. God has left a massive letter for us to read, to know who he is and to know his character and to know his love so that we can have greater relationship with him and so that we can love others the way that he has loved us. But so many of us, and I've been there so many times, so many of us neglect his word in getting to know him better. Kendall really did a good job of pointing out a phenomenon that I just, it's disturbing to me, but at the same time, I don't understand it. Uh, And it is why, if we believe what we believe about scripture, why is that? Why is reading scripture not the most important thing in every Christian's life? And maybe it's the case, and we can speak into this too. Maybe it's the case that not everyone is supposed to be an exegete. Not everyone is supposed to be in the word four or five hours a day. I mean, there, I think maybe there was a, okay, do you think that maybe there was a backlash to the the Catholic tradition of reserving the text to the clergy and that that backlash is still happening to where we're, we're telling every person everywhere that they need to be in their Bible all the time. And are we, have we gone too far to the other side on that? And, um, okay. So we can reduce this to a couple different questions. One, why don't people read their Bibles? Two, is it obvious that every person everywhere should be doing that as much as others, let's say? To the second question, I'll go there first. Um, does every person need to be spending four or five hours in the scriptures every day? No. Um, would it be beneficial for everyone? Absolutely. But is that a necessity for everyone? No. Um, for those who have been called to teach, for those who have been called to lead, for those who have been called to disciple others, there's a, there's a you know 
we will be judged more harshly, right? There is a greater emphasis, a greater weight put on that for those of us who lead. Um, but that's that's not to you know that's not a necessity for every person. I mean, there's there's nothing in the in the Word of God anywhere that would say you have to spend this amount of time or you got to read this many chapters or you get. It's what it does encourage us to do. What it does, I would say, command us to do is to to put the Word inside of us to allow the Word of God to 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 find good ground in our hearts and to grow. That's, you know, uh, the, the psalmist said, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. So there is a direct uh, benefit from having knowledge of God's word. Um, but that that doesn't correlate necessarily to a specific amount of time in the word, a specific amount of chapters, you know, any of that kind of thing. So the the easy answer to that is no, and we could certainly unpack that some more. Um, I would say that look for a long part of the history of the church, the vast majority of people were illiterate. So it wasn't the scriptures that they were reading that was shaping and forming them. That's part of why we have, like when we see the the rise of, of creedal theology and things like that, like those were things that people could memorize, that, that could be taught to people who could not read so that mm. they would understand the truths of the gospel, could be shaped and formed by the gospel. Uh, you know, and so I think, I don't think it's an either or. I think the fact that so, I mean, we live in a literate society for the most part. That doesn't mean that there isn't illiteracy around us, but we live in a literate society for the most part. So every person has the capacity to engage in the Word of God on their own. And I think, I believe that they should be doing that. Um, we, we, don't, we don't understand it in these terms in modern culture, but literacy is a tremendous gift. And it is, mm-hmm. um, it is, a phenomenon of modern man. Mm-hmm. It, it is very new in terms of human history. Uh, and it is a gift, and we should be grateful for it. And we should use that gift in ways that help us to know and understand God and His Word. So every person should be engaged in the Word of God. Having said that, again, I don't think it's an either or. I think what we've not done a good job of as the body of Christ is continue in those creedal traditions to help people to to have things that they've memorized, you know, things that they that they can recall easily, ways in which we in community recite and talk about the theology of the church, our understanding of the Trinity, the virgin birth, the you know, all of those things, things that people can grab hold of and 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 hold in their hearts and we can um celebrate together in community. We've 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 strayed away from that in some ways to the detriment of, I believe, the the spiritual formation of the body of Christ. Mm. I agree. There's some of those uh, practices, um, again, modern day Jewish culture, like Torah, taking classes at a very early age, memorizing scripture. Um, and again, that's that's some of the work that we, you know, hold to ourselves and we say that we believe, but we don't memorize. And in a modern Christian church, westernized church, maybe that's all I can speak for. Um we condemn Sunday school classes. We we don't engage as many um, in uh, what are they like Bible quiz and things like that that would you know recommend 
a certain certain scriptures to be memorized and then rewarding children when they can compete to recall yeah. those things so quickly uh, because that's not cool or uh, because it's gone out of fashion or whatever. We really swung in opposite direction uh, where our beliefs are not based on literally the word of God before us, but it's based on how we feel and more general ideas of, oh, here we go, love, mm -hmm. loving one another. Again, it's good to value healthy relationships, but and, and it's good to value taking care of your neighbor. But if that's all that you have, then you're missing the principle, the character, uh, the very basis of this more general idea. And we've kind of swung that opposite direction. I wonder if um, the reason that more Christians don't read the Bible is because we are more drawn to, maybe more modern Christians, more drawn to entertainment-based uh, mm -hmm. reading. And the Bible is, I mean, oh, it, there's some, if we read it all, there is some, yeah, yeah if we read it all. Um, but, uh, you know, it, there are interesting portions of it. And I mean, like anybody else, I'd love to hear a good story, especially if it's true or based on a true story, but there are some portions of the Bible that are quite heavy. And so if you're not used to reading something, not just for entertainment, um, again, I didn't really like reading for school for education that much, but if it's not just not just education, but it's for application. I don't think we read that too often. Mm. Um, it's a, it's a pretty big how to, um, you know, become more like Jesus. And that's, that's rather difficult to grasp for the modern reader, I think. So this is the part that scares me about all of this. Um, I, I, I think, and I agree, I think I agree, Colin, with what you're saying about the, uh, us living in an age of entertainment. And I think that's reflected in, apps like TikTok and just YouTube short videos, whatever it is, like just things that are really easy to, to digest, for instance. Uh, when I first started reading the Bible, um, before I started reading it, I adopted the mindset of if I find something in here that I disagree with or I think is not true, I'm going to default to I don't understand it yet. And that was the mindset that I had going into it. Yeah. And I think if I didn't have that, looking back, I really tend to believe that if I didn't have that, I wouldn't have been successful in my Bible reading. I think I probably would have just put it down at some point. Yeah. And so with regards to the text, I want to lay out a couple different, um, let's, we'll call them flags because I don't want to set up a false dichotomy here, but I want to, I want to give us something that we can grab onto and then we'll, okay. we'll move from there. Um, with regards to the text, I believe in Islam, the the Muslims believe that the Quran recited in Arabic literally heals and restores you, which is one of the reasons why they won't translate it out of Arabic. Um, when we think about something like scripture, like the Bible, do we view it from the perspective of, okay, even if I go into this with a with a bad heart or a bad mindset, is reading it alone enough to sanctify me? Or am I just setting myself up for further problems? So for instance, if I hold a worldview that's antithetical to the gospel, and I want to believe that, I want to believe my worldview, and so I pick up a Bible to inform myself, you know, about the doctrines of Christianity, wouldn't that just make me more arrogant? Like for instance, um, and, and I'm not impugning him as a person, but Sam Harris, the, the famous atheist philosopher Sam Harris mm -hmm. he's read the Bible like he he knows a, a good bit of Bible he doesn't he's not he doesn't know as 
meant as much as a normal pastor would, but he he's competent in it, uh, competent enough to debate about it. Yeah. And I would say that his reading of the scriptures has only served to strengthen his stubbornness mm-hmm. against it. So do we look at the Bible from the perspective of, okay, all I have to do is sit down and read it and it's going to change me. Or do we look at it like I got to have a heart change first through the the provenient grace of God, let's say, and then my Bible reading will, will, will land on good soil. I don't know that it's the all that cut and dry. I definitely think that it's possible to approach the scriptures and be puffed up by it rather than be changed by it. I think we see it all the time. I think that's why, for example, uh, Christians have often been accused, and rightfully so, of being mean, (laughs) of being hateful, of being bigoted, of being judgmental. It's because we use the Word of God as as a weapon against other people, right? Uh, Not just against an ideology, but uh, to go back to the beginning of our conversation, but against the people who espouse that ideology. We vilify them in the way that we use Scripture even. We're attacking and demeaning. And and so that our knowledge of the Word of God has only served to puff us up, has only served to make us proud. So it's absolutely possible for us to do that. Um, and so I believe that we have to approach the text with humility. We have to approach the text with it prayerfully, like saying, Lord, help, the, help me to see your, help me to learn from your word and help me, help the, the things that I learn, help them not to puff, serve to puff me up, but to serve to make me more like you. Hmm. Uh, and I, so I suppose, yeah, a, a heart change has to come before that, right? People, if we come to Christ, certainly our heart should be changed. But I don't know that that always insulates us. I mean, we are all in the process of being made like Jesus, Mm -hmm. right? There's this, there's the internal reality. I am fundamentally changed. I am a new creation because of Christ, but I still live in this body. I still live in this world. I still, you know, wrestle with the temptations of the flesh and the desires of the flesh and all of those kinds of things. I'm still prone to that. And so I have to to recognize that and come in humility and say, Lord, I cannot do this on my own. I can't, I, I cannot take in the truths of your word and, and they will not perform you know their intended outcomes if I, if if my heart is hardened so lord soften my heart lord open my heart give me give me ears to hear and a heart to respond we have to have humility in these things and i think we've we've not always done a good job of that we we've approached the scripture like how much of god's word can i get through rather than how much of god's word can get through me yeah, that's good. I think a lot of times we approach God's word like a lawyer, looking mm-hmm. back on other precedents and other law that's been set before us to to fill our position or to yeah. to bo- to boost us wherever we or whatever we're looking at to defend our own belief. Um, I it would be great if students read the Bible in school, but if it was a requirement, just like To Kill a Mockingbird or uh, Catcher in the Rye or whatever, do I remember much of those books? No, I don't. And so, like, I don't even think that approach would be like, okay, kids, you have to memorize this and you get a gold star or you have to read this. Uh, the approach should be humble. Mm-hmm. It Again, this book will read you mm-hmm. while you read it. Mm-hmm. I, I think that'll make a huge difference. If we truly believe this is 
This is so unique. This is the inspired word of God. Again, thank you for mentioning the Quran because there is such honor and such distinction for some, for something that is false, mm-hmm. something that is completely yeah, false. Yeah, and that's the thing is like I feel almost envious of the honor that is it, 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 the the high regard that it's held in. You oh, know, yeah. in, in Muslim circles, like I um, look, you hear almost all Christians at least pay lip service to the scriptures. Um, and I'm, that's probably not a very charitable thing to say. Mm. Like, I I think that, you know, I'm I'm not saying that everyone's paying lip service to the scriptures, but we do have an awful lot more translations. And here's the thing, at least in my own testimony, I believe I went through a heart change before I became enamored with the scriptures. But if I hadn't heard the scriptures preached and taught after the heart change, I would have had nothing to grab onto. And I would not be here today. Like I wouldn't be in, I'd be following something else. Like the heart change to me felt like it was just, okay, I know what's going on in the world to, oh, I do not know what's going on in the world. I need help. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, oh, this makes sense. Oh, this, this is good. You know? And then I just kept following from there. And like what you said, you're going to read the scriptures, but the scriptures are going to read you too. I feel like if there's not enough of that divinity kind of imposed on the text, that might be part of the reason why we're, we deal with biblical illiteracy. Try to go somewhere in a Muslim dominant culture and put a Quran on a chair. Good luck. You're going to get your butt kicked and put a Quran on the ground and it will be destroyed because you, I mean, depending on the context, because you have so dishonored something so holy. And then we, again, like you said, we've got translations that make the word of God more uh, palatable or easier to read, or, oh, there's a a little spot on the side where I can add my own thoughts to it. Um, Listen, that's, that's fine. If you have one of those Bibles, whatever, that's for your own study or whatever. But this is a holy inspired thing. And when you read it, the Holy Spirit speaks through it. I mean, we've we've lost that, I think. I think we've gone to more bumper sticker uh, phrases, portions of scripture instead of... And Todd, isn't that a distinctly Abrahamic tradition anyway? Because I, I, I seem to remember learning about the, the way the Jews treated, like if the Tetragrammaton was written or YHWH was written mm-hmm, somewhere, mm-hmm. it's like you don't erase that, you know, right. and... So it, it seems like the roots of this are in the biblical Old Testament. So, yeah, I don't. We must have a high view of God's word. Right. We have to, as scripture tells us, right. And when Paul talks about it, that it is profitable for doctrine and for correction and for reproof and you know all of those things like it that it it, we hold it in high regard that it is the revelation of god to man that you know and so we we have to hold the scriptures in in high regard we have to have a high view of scripture while at the same time understanding that the particular form in which I have received it, there's nothing sacred about it. Mm, yeah. There's nothing sacred about a book, mm-hmm. right? It's the Spirit of God that has anointed and that resides within the words of that book. We believe that Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. And so it's the, the understanding is that I can... I can know God because he has revealed himself in his word. This is, this is how I might know Christ. 
mm-hmm. and be made like him. So we should approach the word of God in that way with a, with a high regard for it. Uh, I'm much more concerned with the ways in which we handle the text than in the ways in which we handle the books the text right, is contained right. in, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, that does. That's good. Okay, so speaking of heart change, let's hit on this final piece. You are no longer who you used to be. You are now seen like a son, a daughter of Christ. Christ lives in you. It is no longer I who live because that man is dead, but it is Christ who lives in me. This culture, it prioritizes the self at all costs, but the Bible teaches us over and over and over again to die to ourselves. And like Ephesians 4.24 says, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, so my thoughts on this really orbit around sanctification itself. And here's the thing. So much of who I was before conversion just stopped at conversion, Mm -hmm. but not everything stopped. Right. And I think that there's a healthy way of viewing sanctification and a not health, a not so healthy way of viewing sanctification. And I think what Christians run into maybe is they, they experience conversion or at least what they believe is to to be conversion in themselves. And they're not just perfect after that. Like they're not just fine after that. And I think maybe they don't, maybe as the church itself, we don't add enough value onto all the things that just get dropped right away. Like it is the case that when you hear the gospel and you take it in and you believe it and you have faith in Jesus, you are just not the same thing that you were before that. There's something else in you now. And so in a way you're completely different. You're like a universe different. Um, here's a good analogy. I have a, a bottle of water here, uh, you know, sitting next to me. If I were to take just a, it's the smallest amount of arsenic and drop it into there, into that bottle, it's not drinking water anymore. It doesn't matter that almost <laughs> all of it is drinking water. It's no longer drinking water to me. And I think that something similar happens when the spirit of God indwells you. You're just different through and through, even though some of you still looks the same as it did before. What do we think about that? Yeah, I wonder, kind of like you said that, like I wonder how many believers who have been saved live a life still bound because they're not sure of the process or the, the expectation has not been set or someone didn't tell them like, that's just it. Your reward's in heaven, congrats, you're good. Because yeah. there's so much more to the Christian life. Again, I say this all the time about the word of God when I teach students or young people, whatever. Like there are principles in God's word and those principles yield fruit. And that fruit is only for the people that live by the principle. Mm-hmm. You know, there are promises of God in the word of God that sound great. And uh, a lot of people like those scriptures and they're fluffy and they're fantastic and rainbows and unicorns, but they are for the people of God who are committed to following God's commands and and the principles that are in that word. And as we continue to grow more dependent on God in our lives, not independent, like we're saved, we're good, we got it, but become more dependent on God. Those things should be the building blocks of our new ideology of life in general. It's not just I'm saved now, things are different. It's no, things are changing in me 
there's a cleansing. There's a, that process of sanctification that you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier. We do a pretty good job of communicating to people that God has called us out of something, right? So if you're you know, living in sexual sin, God has called you out of that. If you are um, addicted, God is calling you out of addiction. If you are, uh, you know, if you're stealing, cheating on your taxes, you know, all the, all the negatives, right? We're, we're pretty good. We've done a pretty good job as God, you know, as a church of saying, God is calling you out of that. God calling you out of your old life. We've not done such a good job of then communicating what God calls us to. Because God doesn't just call us out of something. He calls us into something, into something that is more glorious, into something that is more beautiful, into something that, um, you know, into a life that is shaped like him, into a life that reflects his character and his, you know, and and we don't just develop the character of God uh, by osmosis. It doesn't happen that way. God transforms us absolutely from the inside out. Like, and we know, like the, the day I came to Christ, I knew fundamentally that I was completely different. My deepest desire had changed. And I think this is the thing that maybe we don't communicate well sometimes because we, when people go, well, man, I still, I'm still struggling with lust or I'm still struggling with this. I thought I was a new creature. Well, that. What's your deepest desire? Mm. Right, because before we before we come to Christ, before I came to Christ, my deepest desire was to please Todd. Right, which if we want to go back to this whole the gospel of Harry Styles and kind of mm-hmm. get back to where we're at, that's why the world preaches that gospel. Yeah, yeah, is because outside of Christ, our deepest desire is to please ourselves. But when the Holy Spirit comes and does the work that He does to regenerate us, He changes us. We are fundamentally made different. And my deepest desire, my core desire, goes from I want to please me. To I want to please God. Mm-hmm. That is a complete change of identity. It's a complete change of. I mean, it's it's fundamental. Yeah, yeah. And the whole we, aim is different. Yeah, it's a completely different thing. And so, to me, that's the thing that transforms when we talk about what it means to be a new creature in Christ Jesus. It's not that every sinful desire that I have automatically goes away. It's that my very deepest, my core desire changes. And then the Lord begins to work from that core desire to transform everything else about me so that I might learn to trust him more, so that I might learn to be like him, so I might grow into the image of Christ, grow into this new identity. But the problem is often that I've been fundamentally changed from the inside, but I don't know what it means to live out that identity. Hmm. That's where the scripture comes in. That's where the word of God comes in. That's what discipleship is all mm-hmm. about. And so that's why, man, that I believe that's why Jesus' command to us wasn't go and make converts, but go and make disciples. Yeah, yeah. Because the gospel itself is compelling. It will, you, converts will happen because... At, our our spirits cry out for God, and the gospel answers those questions. It presents to us the thing that we were created for. The gospel story tells us 
the thing that I would, the, the thing that has been lacking in my heart, that hole that's inside of me, Christ fulfills that. That's, man, that's, that's beautiful and compelling. And, and the gospel doesn't need our help in converting people. We mm-hmm. simply have to tell the story. Mm-hmm. The work that God has called us to then is discipling people, helping people to understand how to live into this identity so that we might experience the fullness of the life that God has for us, that we might understand and see and expose the lies of the world that we've believed and that that really are ingrained into these bodies. I mean, we grew up, right? We've, we've grown up in, into like these habitual ways of living, these habitual ways of thinking, these habitual, I mean, you know, shaped and formed by lies. Mm, yeah. And and now the, the work of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit in us is to reform and reshape us yeah. uh, in the image of truth. I, in Romans 6, um, Paul mentioned several times this idea of death to life, or being buried with Christ or dying with Christ and then being resurrected. I like that he uses those terms resurrected, but also, so we're called to die with Christ and to be resurrected like he is, but then we're also called to death to sin and then raised to new life in Christ. So the process, the early process of of setting things aside, putting sin to death, putting our old self to death. Okay. That needs to happen. And the resurrecting part, I don't know, there seems to be a struggle of coming out, but then there's also a process of living the new life that Christ has for us. That is so different. That is so counter to what we would decide of of our own self. Um, I I would encourage anybody listening to this, read Romans chapter six, because Mm -hmm. again, that basically describes what Todd was just talking about, again, what good is an idea of man if it doesn't line up with the Word of God? But what Todd was saying does line up with, uh, well, I just found Romans chapter 6. It's a fantastic read. So maybe we can end on this uh, question here. Doesn't all of this change the way that we adjudicate Christian accountability? So for instance, you know, if you see someone who's a, a new Christian or who's you know just gone through conversion, first of all, I think one failure is one common failure is not realizing just how different that person is now than they were, which we kind of already talked about. Um, but not only that, but somebody who's like struggling with a sin or, you know, has a lot of the, their pre-Christian life still in them. When I look at someone like that, what I think is, okay, that person's just not very far on the timeline yet. And their advancement on the timeline is nonlinear. So five years from now, they might be ahead of me. In Christian culture, it's so difficult to resist the temptation of seeing someone who's not living the way that, you know, the Bible would teach you to live and to say, okay, well, that person's going in the wrong direction. They're just aiming in the wrong direction. I don't know if that's a misreading of what's actually happening. Is it is it just the case that we're not recognizing where that person is in their sanctification as opposed to where they might be three or four or five years from now. The ultimate thing is this time changes so many things a year from now, the whole world might be different than it is today. And I just don't know about, I don't ever want to be the person who prematurely writes somebody off. Yeah. So I think for us as if we look at things in a, like if we, Look at the, at the macro level, for example. All right, that should be our greater concern. 
than than the micro level. Maybe not greater concern, but um, what I mean by what I'm trying to say, I guess, is this: if there is a an epidemic across, let's just take our church for example, the local body that whatever body you may be involved in, whether you're part of Summit Church or whether you, you know, look at your local body, right? And so, is there an epidemic of stagnancy? Mm-hmm. Right? Is there? Are we? Are we not seeing greater maturity on the macro level? Right? Um, as a, as a body, are we growing in Christ? Rather than looking at it in terms of well this person's not as far along as I think they ought to be. So we, you know, so I think the greater concern has to be at that macro level um, to say, are we, are we as a body growing? And then, because the individual thing will work, will work itself out as people are in relationship, Hmm. right? If I am walking in godly relationship with the people around me, and then then discipleship happens in those those kind of relationships. But if we as a church are failing to disciple well, well then that then the individual things don't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not that it's not that I don't have a concern for each individual person. It's just that I think yeah. that those individual things happen if we are paying attention as you know as a community of saying are we are we discipling well. You yeah, know. yeah, yeah. Because the, the macro level might re- represent patterns of misunderstanding rather than just an individual confusion. Right. And right, yeah, man, that oh, there's a whole other podcast than just that thought right there. That's really good. Well, Jesus often um, told parables about uh, producing fruit, and I think when we consider someone that's early on in their faith, uh, a believer that is early on in that journey. Um, what you should desire for them is to be connected. Like John 15 tells us about the branch and the vine. If, if the branch is connected to the vine, it bears much fruit and lasting fruit. Connect, disconnected from the vine, it produces nothing. Uh, and basically it's not good for anything, so it's left to ruin. Um, I think that that's, uh, maybe that's too general, but producing lasting fruit. That means making disciples. That means your marriage is changing. That means uh, your language is changing. Mm-hmm. That means the way that you live throughout your day is changing. The way you raise your children or, or interact with other people is uh, a lasting fruit um, that kind of shows your connection and relationship, not just uh, how many times you've read through the Bible. I mean, I mean that produces something. Um, you know, I don't think God's word would go out void if you read it five times. I, I think that would be great for you, anybody. But again, the, the lasting fruit that takes place in their lives that naturally comes from being in relationship, allowing the Holy Spirit in your life and letting the word of God speak into your life. Yeah, that's a, that's a great place to end it. Colin, Todd, thanks guys. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, anytime. Bye everybody. So we definitely went down our share of rabbit trails in that conversation, but all things considered, I'm happy we did. Next week, we will discuss the third part of the gospel according to. As always, if you find this content valuable, please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to it. Don't forget to subscribe at summitpodcast.church forward slash subscribe. This is your home base for all things Summit Audio. Whether you're in Blairsville, Indiana, or anywhere else in the Summit community, I hope you know we all love you, we appreciate you, 
and we will see you in the next episode.